0: the Bane free radio hour
1: on the podcast discounts on ebooks by the dean of science fiction and a new novel by Charles E. Gannon plus we continue our ongoing audiobook serialization of Timothy Zahn's Cobra all right now Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour. It's a pleasure to have you along. I am Bain Associate Editor and your podcast host, David Shirod. Today, we bring you part one in a two-part conversation between Griffin Barber and Charles E. Gannon about Gannon's latest novel, Into the Vortex. This is book two in his Vortex of Worlds series, which takes all the epic fantasy and heroic fantasy tropes we know and love and completely turns them on their heads. But first... The news. For the month of February, we're offering discounts on all of our Robert A. Heinlein backlist titles. Fall in love with the work of the Dean of Science Fiction or revisit a new favorite. Get $1 off Starman Jones, The Star Beast, Beyond This Horizon, The Man Who Sold the Moon and Orphans of the Sky. Waldo and Magic Incorporated, and the sixth column now. The sale ends February 28th, and these discounts are valid wherever Bain eBooks are sold. And that's it for the news.
2: Hi there, I'm Griffin Barber, your host for today's edition of the Bain Free Radio Hour. Born in New Jersey, Charles E. Gannon went on to get an extensive education at some of the nation's finest schools, including a doctorate from Fordham, where my daughter happens to be in her freshman year of undergraduate studies. Chuck, as I'm privileged to know him, first came to my attention when I was overseas. I read a short story of his in War World 4 that stuck with me through the years. After a long sojourn in academia, Chuck came roaring back with contributions in shared universes with Steve White and Eric Flint, where he co-authored excellent novels in the Starfire and Ring of Fire universes, respectively. His fans wanted more, of course, and Chuck obliged with his own series, The Kane-Riordan Books, which now number more than six mainline volumes and many more in the Murphy's Lawless Annex of them. Throughout his career, Chuck has provided sage advice and help to other authors, including this one. We're here not simply to talk about what what a great guy Chuck is, but about his latest work, Into the Vortex, forthcoming from Bain Books, sequel to the brilliant This Broken World, into the Vortex continues the adventures of a band of unlikely heroes as they seek answers to questions which shake the very foundations of the worlds they inhabit. Hello and welcome, Chuck.
3: Hi, Griffin. Uh, thanks for all those pretty sounding lies. I-, I mean the bio.
2: So, hardest questions first. What is the coolest aspect of Into the Vortex for you?
3: Um, that's a that's a tough one, but I would say if I had to choose one, it's the. It's the unfolding detail of uh, the Osmodea or Gates. They go by a lot of different names. And I know I'm actually probably uh, stepping on a later question by by putting this one up first. But the thing that, that very often uh, gets me about Gates is that they are very convenient. They're wonderful tools. Sometimes they become the story's MacGuffin. But in this case, I... I The gates that exist, if we wanna call them that, or portals, um, have very different origins and have very different purposes. And they are, um, they can be altered or not in different ways. And this is something that only really, that is unfolding over the course of this novel as other things are unfolding behind it. And some of the things that may seem, have not seemed very um, uh, important in the in the last novel, I think are becoming a little bit more important in this one. For instance, when they when they go to the um, uh, the uh, a place called Mirror Sky, where a very very long lived race is the um the ulamantra sort of let it be known that they thought they were going to come there because the ulamantra are very long lived. They they should know about this sort of stuff because it's been around a long time. And the ulamantra pretty much flatly say we won't have it inside the precincts of Mirror Sky, because it's and they have a they have a word for it that essentially means an aberration, or an atrocity, uh, in to the to the threat of reality, and that doesn't get fully answered. But the point is that they have been they were bouncing into the Ulamantra last novel, they bounced into the Dragon, last novel. But what we're discovering is that the further back you go, conversations about these portals and strangely enough cataclysms tend to show up not exactly in parallel, but it's remarkable how a conversation about one is, is proportionally more likely to involve a con- uh, a, a mention of the other right. and, uh, and why that's happening is going on. And as I came up with the, the I, I, saying I came up with the rules is kind of um, a misnomer uh, because I really feel the rules told themselves to me because I know very much why and how different kinds of, um, uh, and almost no one calls it magic because that's considered a, uh, that's considered like um, uh, a, a commoner term. And actually they, what seem like arbitrary distinctions for the exercise of, of mystic powers Um are, I think in this novel are starting it's starting to become evident they're not really that arbitrary they really do touch on different things ex, uh, which are uh, if you will exploiting different aspects of the world
2: yeah I noted that the uh, in the in the first book there's a lot of mention of mantic and then religious magic and now it's kind of like every time we're mentioning them they're being mentioned at the same time. Uh, as far as like the the possibility of controlling something or doing something is, it's you could use either one, but not in this case, or it may be in this case, kind of thing. So it's interesting to me to kind of pick those things out, uh, knowing the level of detail that you like to go into on on uh, systems generally, but also in specific on the uh, how the worlds work. Um, so. You didn't, it doesn't sound like you stumbled on that, but uh, did you work your way to it? Uh, did the characters dictate it, or the story you wanted to tell?
3: You know, that's a that's a really that's an excellent question. It's a question I'm asked a lot, and I I think routinely give frustrating answers. Um, by which I mean that they, you know, the the it's a it's a logical question to do it as either or, but I have to answer it as simply as yes. Um, because what's happening really is I I may think about a character, but I can't think about a character too long before I think about what sort of world that character has come from, because that's going to shape the character, its expectations and all the rest. And so you start defining the world or you may start defining, I may have more of an idea of the world and say, well, what sort of, what would be the most interesting character for me? Who would I want to go to that world and talk to and say, now you tell. Me, can you tell me about this? If they knew all of it, or if they were in the process of finding out. So for me, it's really actually a sort of iterative process coming from those two polarities: the environment or the individual in the environment, and and they they come to a point of um, of intersection that then becomes, if you will, a, a kind of braided thread. Because in talking about the one, I'm exploring the other. Cool.
2: So, uh, Into the Vortex has a lot of wild ideas at its core, including gates or osmotia, uh, body-hopping minds of great age, and people who renew themselves every so often. Uh, Did your world building come first, or did you arise out of the story and the characters you're using to tell it? Obviously, you were kind of alluding to that as kind of (laughs) yes. Yeah. (laughs) Both of those.
3: Well, you know, there were things that I didn't realize um, when I started. I was pretty sure that I needed... All of what the dragons are has only been touched. We know they live a long time. We know there aren't that many left. Um, What they don't realize until uh, they realize this by the end of the first book—that when they say, "Well, you know, you lay eggs, so you know you're you're a female," and the dragon says, "That's a that's a meaningless question." It's like, "Well, what do you mean? It's a meaningless." And and actually, there's you know. The, he, the, the dragon laughs at the idea of, it's like, you know, that we thought you had to fly and mate in midair. It's like, my God, who came up with that? Right. It's like an ulamont It's like, oh yes yeah, so always, a, a, you know, a, case for, a taste for the prurient, you know, <laughs> millennia millennia of wisdom hasn't driven that out of you. Um, but uh, but of course, when they get to the end of it and they, they're saying, yeah, but so you're, and he keeps on saying, what is, you know, it's it's like, but you lay an egg. And he says, don't you understand? The egg is meat. It's like, what? The idea is that if the dragon dies, the soul essentially goes into whatever the the, the egg that is most ready to be hatched. And right. it is the new expression of the dragon, which, and then he has fun with the idea of, you know, he he, uh, he turns a, a phrase. The dragon was huge fun to write. You know, it's like, you know, to coin, a, to, to coin an axiom, you know, what came first, the dragon or the egg? Right. Um, and in his case, <laughs> It really is a valid question. And of course, we, or I say in his case, in its case, it really is a a valid question. I say, I I started, I slip into it, not because I I hope I'm I'm some sort of lurking patriarchal, you know, know, imposer of uh, of the patriarchy, but because the body it inherits or decides to occupy when it runs through two other bodies. Um, not not cruelly, but actually by kind of, in one case, kind of a mercy thing, in the other case, a mishap. Um, and then in the in the third case, it basically decides, okay, I'm going to get something big that can take a lot of punishment. Right. And that happens to be male. Um,
2: well but, that was uh, one of the things but, that was kind of interesting to me and reading it was is that if they're able to transfer their consciousness, their their entirety of themselves to an egg, then clearly they'd be able to do it in other fashions too or might be able to do other yeah. fashions too so it right. was it was a cool logical extension of that ability or power to be able to bounce uh, around or send their consciousness elsewhere and, right. and have it in other bodies. So yeah I, I thought
3: we cool. learned we learned something interesting about and I don't know if I should share it but it's, it's a, that's a it's an extraordinary power. When one thinks about it, right? First of all, it can communicate directly to minds. Yep. It, it finds that with with one notable exception, uh, which which actually happened in the last book. So I think I can drop that, which is our protagonist, for some reason, the dragon cannot reach and doesn't doesn't even realize it can't reach it until it says, will you please let that down, whatever you're doing? And the protagonist drew it and says, I'm not doing anything. Right. Um, which is one of those... You know, dangling threads stick around. You'll get your answer, uh, but you don't get it in the second book. Uh, <laughs> um, but the uh, the 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 point that I'm working to is if you can read the mind of something else and get into the mind of something else, particularly if it's a weak mind, either because the physical state is weak or the mind has been significantly damaged, or just because it's really not very perspicacious. Um, it's still, it's an extraordinary power. Well, if you're going to have extraordinary powers, the logical question becomes, well, if dragons could always do that. Why didn't they do it all the time and just take everything else over? And that reason comes up in this book. And and all I can say is there's a cost connected to it, which explains why eggs are not being laid willy-nilly all over the place by the hundreds to make sure that you know that it can, because because the thing is when it's in when the dragon is in the mind of another creature it cannot be watching its own body right and that means it's it's taking a risk um, but the the real the real guarantee of its immortality isn't that other body the real guarantee of its functional immortality are its eggs right. so why doesn't it have unlimited numbers of eggs?
2: hmm,
3: we wonders, Mr. Baggins, we wonders, and there is an answer given in this book.
2: Yeah. So skirting away from the uh, the uh, too much revealing, uh, into the vortex has at its heart a young man, Jordan, uh, uh, who is trying to find answers to some fundamental and very challenging questions about his world and its history that his extensive education cannot or will not answer. Uh, how'd this character and his background come to you? Um. I know this reaches back, back into the uh, previous book, but.
3: Yes. Um, although, um, and there, how can I put this? He's a very old concept for me, probably going back at least 40 years. Wow. Um, so I've had this character in mind for a long time. Hell, I, I just wrote something. I just wrote a scene the other day, one of the sort of penultimate scenes in um, the next Kane book, which I have been waiting to write since 1984. Because <laughs> I, that's when I saw it. Um, so maybe, maybe I'm, I'm I, I, I aspire to the memory and life arc <laughs> of some of these uh, the other species that I'm writing about. But in the case of, uh, in the case of him, it was uh, I. I knew what I wanted him to be uh, in his initial incarnation. Uh, a much more sort of um, the powers he had were I would call the obvious ones which by the time I got out of my 20s, I found extremely tiresome. Um, what I mean by that is the, 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 the you know, the, 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 Gol- the Gandalf masters of magic, right. the, the Conan-esque, you know, you know sword slingers. Um, these sort of things are great fun. And I've made sure to sprinkle them into these books
2: or sword wavers uh, bait, as, as the dragon calls them yeah
3: yeah 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 steel wavers, sword steel waver, 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 yeah, sword waver yeah. yeah he he always finds a way to make something as disparaging as possible um god is he fun to write um as, as folks who know me in public uh, w- will probably attest, I'm, I, I try to be a very tactful person. That doesn't mean that there isn't an entirely different soundtrack in here going on at all times. And the dragon is my opportunity to sort of like vent that a little right. bit. Um,
2: oh, an Ahern too. Uh,
3: oh, yes. Oh, absolutely. And, they find and their match
2: Yeah.
3: Oh, yes. Who, who of course, heads. But in the final analysis, not so much. Right. because both of them are busy denying their better natures if you will um and it is very often the other that makes it impossible for the for the one it's impossible to keep denying their better nature when she, the other which which bonds them and irritates them no end mm-hmm. uh <laughs> but um but Drudain, you know in that sort of uh, in initial Was was well. What powers would I give him? And then I realized, nah, those aren't interesting. Those first of all, they're run of the mill, and they are not. And they're the ones you think about. But the really important power, when you think about it, that he has, and they're both established in the first book, is that if he is close to any sort of mantic or mystic uh, projection, it doesn't work. And if it, or it's reduced, it, it depends on his range from either its point of emanation or its point of manifestation, as the case may be, for those who are keeping score at home. Uh, and similarly, his mind is not reachable. He is not influenceable. And we haven't seen this yet, but also the attempt to fool him with creating either a mental or a light show of, of an illusion that is not there. Nope. Which should have readers asking, "That's a very because no one's seen this. This is not like other things. Even dragons don't really have this. They can close off their mind, but they have to choose to do it. This is very different. And so that should be one of those, you know, the for instance, you know." um, And I know that this is, this is probably a a question coming later, you know, but, but in choosing him, there's a kind of, um, it's, you know, why did I choose this sort of book for instance, is really answered in the, why this character, because I think Bildungsroman are, are really interesting. And that's really how the first book starts. By the second book, it is still a Bildungsroman, but it's a Bildungsroman on the order of Paul Atreides, Bildungsroman, or Luke Skywalker, Bildungsroman. Um, you're getting not a look just at the normal world. You're getting look you're getting for one reason or another they are injected into a a, a um a, a domain of reality which is very atypical and it has atypical effects. Um, And so this was one of the things that I decided about him, that, uh, that I wanted somebody who could survive that journey by having this mysterious component that wasn't, doesn't really make him, it doesn't make him a chosen one, right? but he's got something that almost no one understands, but it makes people nervous because they don't understand
2: it well it's a, it's and, the opposite it's not, of it's yeah. the opposite of power it's mm-hmm. he has this ability to to kind of be a sink when into which things mm-hmm. are thrown and that you know to anybody who has power so mm-hmm. unlike the farm boy who makes it, you know becomes this incredibly yeah. powerful guy he actually has this i mean it would almost be a curse mm-hmm. <laughs> you, know, if you if you were not unable to be healed by say mantic powers or something like that that, that would suck. So I, I like the way that it's kind of turned on its head a little bit. But one of the things that kind of got me on that was, uh, or the reason why I want to ask this question is because I was wondering how much of uh, of him is reflected in you. You have uh, this uh, the PhD, the master's and everything, and how much he, that you felt like, uh, or perhaps I was reading into it, but that you might have felt like, you know, your, your education's great your experience is so much more though to add so much more to the uh to the layers of what you are because there's a lot of commentary and back and forth especially in uh into the vortex about how all the dinarans are all uh they're all know-it-alls or highly educated kind of folks and they don't necessarily say what they mean all the time and they, you know that kind of thing but that they're uh they're education, he, the Gerard in particular, Druidane in particular comes into contact with people who are far more experienced from a similar background. And they're able to kind of, you know, look, dude, you know, slow your roll here a little bit <laughs> and listen up because here's some information that you need. Uh, and he accepts that on the basis of, you know, this is what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to find answers. I need to listen. Um, so it was kind of fascinating to me that, to hear that answer that, uh, kind of centered on the on the powers uh, or the, the the way things were developed as opposed to what i was thinking it was which was maybe just kind of a personal thing where you're like oh you know what it'd be kind of interesting to see how this very book-learned individual uh approaches these huge problems because even at at, at a uh, at a certain point in into the vortex he's told you got to stop going to libraries man you know, the, yes. answers you're gonna, yes. the answers you'll find in libraries are not <laughs> are not all of the answers
3: exactly and and that follows up something the there's a there's a section in the um in the uh in the first book where the the dragon talks about you know history and what's left of it and right. he sa- and, and, and he says and shall I tell you what I know of what's left of the books of history for the you might have one or two Truly learned scrolls or, or tomes written every century or so—do they survive the consuming fires and pagan pagan violences of that age? Of course not, because there are only two or three copies. But the but the the little you know sort of uh, the the palimpsest of, of of angry people who are trying to sway people you know, other people with. With the a propaganda short document yeah. yeah the propaganda yeah. Those are the bad. ones that are are produced in such numbers and that is what you think history is let me tell you having seen that wheel turn many times you do not we never know really what were the great moving forces of the age and like a, and i don't think the 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 dragon uses this analogy but it's sort of like you know when they find three bones of a dinosaur and suddenly they, they have animations of these these fully realized creatures moving across (laughs) like some, some, Cretaceous Savannah. And, and you're saying, really, (laughs) you know, how do you know that they, they, they didn't have like, you know, fairy dust on them or something, you know, whatever the case is. And it's, um, and this is the sort of thing that, that in being in touch with things that are long live, he, he's realizing that being said, um, There is a lot of respect for certain libraries, um, particularly the ones that try to carefully, and this is one of the things that Dinarans do, and this is of course his background as a courier, which is to go out and to actually, um, before he was ever really doing anything having to do with riding on the borders and, and collecting intelligence and observing, he was being sent to the four corners or more of the world to basically something came up which was unknown knowledge.
2: Secure a book, Dunarins, secure scroll. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah.
3: Because the entire, the, the Dunarans are they are smart enough to know this. They wish they knew more than they do. Right. And they know that one of the reasons they don't is because exactly what the dragon is saying, which is why the dragon will make fun of Dunarans but a Dunarin is arguably his closest friend.
0: Right. You know,
3: it's it's a it's a sort of like, well, you're not bad for what you are. you know? <laughs> I'll give you that.
2: Best of but, a bad lot. Right. Um, yeah. I, you,
3: you're, you know, I don't. It's like,
2: I won't call you disabled,
3: but we know you are. Right. Um,
2: Your limitations are such. Yeah.
3: Yeah. So, the, so the real thing here is I'd say both things were there um, and they sort of evolved at the same time. I wanted him, I wanted somebody who could travel the world and I, I thought to myself, well, how would you be a very young man who, or woman, because we see both in all of their roles, um, uh, how would you know, how would you have the experience to survive traveling to very many different places? And so one of the things I thought was, well, to have what would be the reason the Dunarans would have, there would be the force projection aspect of when they were still the, the second consentium, an empire, that's largely gone, but their, their outriders and their couriers are still, particularly the couriers, will go just about any place. You need to be able to learn languages. You need to be right. not completely freaked out by different cultural mores. And it strikes me certainly having, you know, I never got out of the country. I was never out of this country until the the summer I graduated from undergrad. And I always knew I wanted to and and then a lot of I I had Fulbrights and I traveled a lot and I've seen a bunch of different things. And is, it is absolutely true that book learning is useful and important. Um, but it is also po- possible to be the person who knows everything and understands nothing. And and I wanted to bring both of those things into play and into kind of a, a, a frictional relationship at different points and in different ways across the, the unfolding of
2: the narrative. Cool. So which character in Into the Vortex surprised you?
3: You know, I had... There is a, I can't remember her her name because even, because if if I'm not writing those books, some of the names, particularly the Ulamath names, get away from me. Um, They are truly alien names. They are, there are reasons for that. There's one who's just recently been, I'm going, they call it rebirth, to being rebirthed. What actually is a symbiotic relationship with, they look like trees, people call them trees. They're not just trees. Uh, <laughs> um, and she has done this many times and she is just freshly out of it. And what I, what I thought was originally, well, they're going to go to Mirosky, Sky where the Ulamantra are and she is going to be the oldest and the wisest. Well, she's the oldest and she's seen the most. But one of the things that it struck me just, and I discovered it just in the process of writing her, that she says at one point, she says, it's difficult to come into this you know this sort of loud world where things happen very fast again and she said and i have so many memories of earlier lives that it can be a great frustration to remember which one i'm in to keep track of this one to add this one to those because i'm i'm actually trying to reaccess those because if i let those go fallow those memories become part of they may go with my old body And so she becomes uh, intemperate, impatient, and and also easily exhausted. And I never saw that. You know, I I never saw that. Maybe I was playing Galadriel in my head or something like that. But the bottom line was she told me in no uncertain terms, that's not who you are. But then I realized that the characters or character that most surprised me you don't even know as a character until the last two pages of the book, where we hear from something. Well,
2: and- I I, I kind of, I thought of her, I, I think it was her for some reason, but yeah, the diminutive thing, I, I, I yeah, I, I figured they were a character because the guidance that's given throughout the whole book is pretty clear mm-hmm. that there, there's some something going on there.
3: Yeah, you mean with with the, uh, the thing? The bracelet. The, <laughs> yeah, yeah, the bracelet, the sword. Yeah, all yeah, that stuff. Right. Um. So there's something. And I did not expect them to reveal themselves this time. But it turned out just where things ended. Because originally I was going to take it a little bit further. I was going to have people take the next step, which for those of you who will read it will understand what that means. Right. but I realized no it's better to stop on the threshold and as a matter of fact that is the title of the last very short part of the novel and uh, and it suddenly made sense to me there are reasons that are not going to be immediately evident why they're important but there's a concern with synchrony but it's but it's not merely at the same time, the lang- I'm going to just suggest to people when you read those lo- last two pages, pay very close attention to exactly how time is being discussed, right, uh, in that exchange, because that will turn out to be quite important.
2: So it, that's it, it, how did those characters then come to be? Ah, uh, you- uh, well, I always knew.
3: So it probably shouldn't, there's one of two things, since we know from early in this book uh, that he goes through something called a shimmer, which is at the top of the lady's tower, which is, is, is definitely where we're all the lady of the mirror. And very early on in the book, uh, takes a fateful step, uh, we'll say. And he, go, he goes through the, the, out the other side, nothing, nothing on him except the circle that we were just talking about, the bracelet, the bracer, and the sword. And what he learns later is that only living things can pass through. So I kind of, what I I, I, I knew that, but I didn't know the extent to what that is. I What's didn't know yeah. how they were. I didn't know what they tied to. And like I said, I didn't know that they were going to, um, they were going to voice anything this time, but they did.
2: Cool. So, uh, in a similar vein, which character from Into the Vortex would you want to avoid like the plague and why? Uh, the,
3: the, uh, the um, Just Dixon uh, Ward Pack, who's also known as the Sorceress, who is the person that ultimately one of the reasons why Druidain takes that, that fateful step is not only because in all probability, the answers that he was not able to acquire in the, 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 the end of the first book, uh, he's pretty much told, look, you're probably going to have to leave. and You know, it's a little bit that, that idea of, you know, a prophet is never, is never appreciated or honored in their own land. Well, in the same way, sometimes you have to leave home to see home and, and that that is not merely true in the cultural but cosmological scheme of things. And so this is this is, you know, uh, and part of the other part of the reason though the other reason he does it is because um, the that mirror was used in a in a a very in a very necessary and arguably very positive manner um, in a way that happens off stage but let's just say that there were there were um it was you know there's a there's a there's a, a term in the intelligence and my guess is also in the police community an investigation it's like no blowback you know break gotta be clean gotta be clean well as we all know clean is a rare and endangered species in anything and something wasn't clean and he also feels a sort of sense of responsibility increasingly as he finds the trail left by the sorceress, that that somebody's got to do something about this. So so that that was, um, that's the character, that character who we have not yet seen, but we have seen her handiwork and those of her compatriots. And uh, I think it's pretty clear that there's...
2: uh, She's not a nice person. (laughs)
3: <laughs> yeah you probably wouldn't want to have her over for tea or even you know like freshly tapped blood I think you know she'd probably try to take
2: yours So which character then on the flip side would you want as an ally
3: It's gonna sound strange but probably all things being equal either alkin 2 or alcu 4 that is the preparator of Dunara because they do know, what side things are buttered on they are principled um they have they've got they have responsibility that if they'd be the first people to tell you no being forget mortal no no being that is less than a deity whatever that means should really be having to have any influence over how this thread or that thread or the other is tugged or released or pulled or played out um but um but they are uh it it won't make sense to people just yet why you would want them as an ally. but I'll just say this
2: well, I mean aside from the fact that they're they the power the the secular power in their uh, uh in their consentium
3: yes. On the other hand, the Donarins live approximately two to four times as long as normal humans do, which also begs the question of human. Now, if you think that highly motivated people with a sense of duty just sit around learning to become expert basket weavers, um, my guess is you don't. People haven't met a lot of people with, with high capabilities and, uh, and a sense of duty. Uh, usually there is no short shortage of personal improvement either. And certainly one example of that is their joint friend, both the grandfather and the grandson, who is Shananka. And you get to say, I, I hope it's been transmitted in the books that you don't want to freaking mess with Shananka. You, you don't want to really screw with her, you know, just just as a just as a basic hint. <laughs>
2: So the band of unlikely heroes, all of which have their unique spin and nomenclature, a seemingly misanthropic elf, an honor-bound orc, a swashbuckling swordsman uh, with a mouth, and a quiet wizard. They're all characters we were introduced to in uh, this broken world, but uh, take on even larger roles in into the vortex. Uh, each species and ethnic group in the books has its own unique spin in these works while remaining safe amongst the you know best and most familiar uh, tropes of high fantasy. Uh, is there any chance some of these characters might get their own novels or stories in the future?
3: When the books were proposed to Tony Weiskopf, uh quite some time ago, I think 2015, it took a long time to get around to writing these because other things kept happening. Um, but uh, it was envisioned that there would, there would, and this is sort of, I guess you could say T in the fact that in this book, whereas in the first book, you, all of the, it, you, you really saw things mostly from, from Druidane's point of view. You had other POVs, but it was really strongly Druidane and he kept the journal, which is um, a, a, a there are all sorts of reasons. If this was a writer's podcast, I could tell people why I adopted the journal. First of all, you get to hear what's going on inside of, of uh, a character's head. Uh, second of all, I think that when people write, they very often reveal things about themselves, particularly if they don't see themselves as writers. Right. And 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 knowledge and predilections and takes on the universe and senses of humor all become become evident. Well, in this one, uh although I think he's probably only the POV character for maybe about a third to 40% of the book, Ahern actually has to take on the job that he swore he would never do, which was to keep the journal when Druidane, for reasons you'll find out, is not there to keep it, although he's keeping his own journal. Um, and and so uh, one of the things that, that the... Uh, to go back to your question, because I know that this is leading up to something, I just don't remember anymore. Uh, so, so you were talking about the different um, the different characters, sort of firmly ensconced in the in in the known tropes of the field, and and what was the question in relation to? that? So, the, the, are they going to have
2: novels or short stories? In oh, their that's
3: own? it. Yeah. <laughs> so, when I proposed this to Tony, I said I actually think a Hern definitely has has legs for for novels of his own. Um, and, and if you, if you take a look at how much time passes, there's lots, lots of room, lots of places for that to happen. And the thing about it, Hearn, and this is, you know, one of the things that you notice about the the characters we tend to like best in series, uh, uh, you know, it's like, we like, we like, uh, we like Han Solo or we like Darth Vader. But the bottom line is if you do not have, and I kind of think this is where Star Wars is not. Always well structured. If you don't have a, a moral compass, particularly a self-aware moral compass, right? All of these other characters they they're great. They're the most they get the best lines, they tell the best jokes. Even Darth Vader tells great jokes, right? For, right almost right off the bat. What is it I find your lack of faith distressing or distresses disturbing. me? I mean, is he joking the guy? You know, it's like great line, gotta love a line. And But, um, but so, so one of the things that I, the reasons that I mentioned that is because I think that there's opportunities in this series to do a little bit with the, the, the very, the very significant serious arc that dominates the main books with some kind of more fun, uh, you know, side ventures that are, that are, they're not slapstick but are not necessarily tied into the, 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 the gravitas generating issues of right. the main novels, which is exactly what was done. As you know, being, being in the playground, you're in the, in the the sandbox yourself. One of the things that I always wanted to do with the Canry Orton books with Murphy's Lawless, which is right. to, you know, to be able to leverage that. So I don't know if it will happen, but it has been, it has been part of the discussion from the first that there might be individual novels coming off for some of these characters.
2: Cool. So the band of adventurers uh, are all of diverse backgrounds and motivated by disparate events in their backgrounds. Uh most of their cultures have long histories of animosity and war, uh sometimes with each other, yet they manage to get along in pursuit of answers to the big questions. Um so the question is and this one is is that is this band of disparate people modeled on any groups you have come into contact with yourself, or is their ability to overcome their own prejudice in pursuit of a greater goal, uh, hoped for out uh outcome of cross cultural contact for you?
3: Yes, <laughs> uh, <laughs> because there's a lot of stuff in there, particularly when you when you get it takes to the second novel to realize why the Ulamantra. And the yes in general are considered perverted, They're perverted and and uh, and sodomists and all this sort of stuff by humans. Um, and the the wake up call for the char- exactly the characters we think would have no idea about it is a is a true wake up call that makes that really sort of stands the understanding of the other culture entirely on its head and shows that the understanding was based out of essentially self. a a sort of myopic ignorance that the world should, should replicate again and again, that with which I'm familiar. And, and so in that regard, it is very, very purposefully. um, There are commentaries in there about um, gender. There are commentaries in there about race. There are commentaries in there about um, privilege, um, which can go in various directions.
2: but I Martin I, Martin. I love what Elware says to uh, says to Ahern at that moment when they're observing the yeah. that yeah. thing that it, it goes on with the Aosti is that, that yeah yeah hey, uh, I I couldn't you had to come to it yourself, dude. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I couldn't. And nobody he, can push you there. But yeah. now that you're here,
3: <laughs> right?
2: You're and, here, buddy.
3: Um, <laughs> that's a that's a really transitional moment for him too. Yeah um and not uh, to give
2: anything away yeah But it was cool it was very well executed and is is literally the the experience that you hope some of these some idiots would have uh, in their their you know diatribes against the universe when mostly proceeding from ignorance that when they have that moment where they go oh oh, yeah (laughs)
3: what yeah um and then the thing is, why didn't you tell me? And it's like, not not only is it not my business, it's not my right. I yeah. mean, if they wanted to have people proselytizing these things, they could send town, they could hire some of us to go around as town criers. Right. They have. I'm going to take my lesson from that, yeah. which is probably goes back to what you said. The only way to come to it is to come to it in your own time. Right. And you have to show. You have to actually make some sort of effort to find out or be lucky enough to be in the place. Um, but yeah, so, so, but it's also, it does reflect certain groups and it's gonna sound very strange, but these fandom, which I did not grow up in fandom, but I find that you will not find, I, and I think it's almost, it, it's, there may be people who express themselves oddly uh, and who don't necessarily, I'm going to say, and it's the difficulty of of any sort of linear communication that we have to say things in sequence rather than being able to push nine different ideas that that balance each other at the same time. I think a lot of misunderstandings that I see in more online than in any place else is because words happen one after the other. There's no mediating body language, there's no mediating tone. um and and therefore,, um, One of the things that I like about about fandom is I've encountered it essentially, you know, in the second half of my life only is that however people may sound online, you get into contact with them and you find that in general, narrowness is not a preference. It may be a consequence of exposure, but the mere fact that they're interested in science fiction and fantasy kind of tells you that they don't just want things the way they are and there's an unusual degree of underlying receptivity regardless of the apparent politics cultural preferences or or presumptions of the individual that that it's a it's um it's a wonderful opportunity for it and it is it is personally i think i don't get angry I, i i feel it's a tragedy that that so many things in the last decade have have functioned to occlude or eclipse what should be a, a really a beacon of possibility. So um, so it's um, it is that's one group fandom, and the other one, strangely enough, is um, so. I've been in the uh, in the big white building in Langley that a lot of movies get don't get to go in, but they shoot from the outside usually by helicopters. Um, and when you walk past the cubicles that, that I'm not saying that they are, that their lives are the lives of fans or that the way they are enthusiastic about battle parody matches the, you know, cut. Co- I, I don't think that many of them are probably closet cosplayers. I don't, I don't perceive that, but right. there's the same receptivity. There's the same open-mindedness, which is if we, if you say something cannot be, you actually can't do the job of analysis very well, right? Um, and um, so those are those are kind of two groups that I have in mind, watching very often where initial misperceptions start, but can but there's a sort of there are opportunities for bridges and healing in those which which I I guess you could say optimistically build into the story. Not I hope I hope not in a didactic way. As a matter of fact, I believe whenever, whenever somebody says, what's your theme? And, and Tony likes to do this. <laughs> and, and my thing is like, if I say that too often, I worry that the theme starts to drive the book. And I find that usually I have such a strong, I, I, there's so many things informing me that that theme is probably the last you have to worry about, unless and except for if it takes if it starts driving the bus overtly. So it's been it was opportunities. It made the characters interesting. Hopefully there's there's some some value beyond that in it. And if there's not, I just hope it's a it's a great it's a it's a good story. And well, interesting. It's, yeah, definitely
2: a part of the a cool part of the story. I mean, again, it, it stood out to me just because. That, that's been the only way I know how to really change minds is to let people yeah. change their own minds. Yeah. <laughs> but, so.
1: And now we bring you Timothy Zahn's Cobra. Earth's only hope was the Cobras. The colony worlds Adirondack and Silvern fell to the trough forces almost without a struggle. Outnumbered and on the defensive, Earth made a desperate decision, it would attack the aliens, not from space, but on the ground, with forces the troughs did not even suspect. Thus were created the Cobras, a guerrilla force whose weapons were surgically implanted, invisible to the unsuspecting eye, yet undeniably deadly. But power brings temptation, and not all the cobras could be trusted to fight for Earth alone. Johnny Moreau would learn the uses and abuses of his special abilities and what it truly
0: meant to be a cobra. Interlude To the trained and observant eye, the signs were all there. They weren't obvious, of course. An unnecessary phrase in an official Troft message to the committee, certain small shiftings of both merchant and perimeter guard starships, comments coming from the Menthisti at obvious troughed prodding, small things, each in itself completely meaningless. But taken as a group, all the tiny pieces pointed unidirectionally to the same conclusion. After fourteen years of allowing Dominion ships to pass freely through their territory, the Trofts were getting tired of it. Vanis Darl scowled blackly as he stared at the nighttime view of Dome visible through his office window. It wasn't exactly a startling development. Half the committee was frankly surprised the corridor had remained open as long as it had. The Star Force, in fact, had been updating its contingency plans for eleven years now. And unless something was done— It looked like they'd get the chance to test its strategies within the year. It went without saying that, win or lose, one of the first casualties of a new war would be Aventine and its own two fledgling colonies—precisely the worlds the war would theoretically be fought to defend, which in Darl's opinion made the looming conflict an exercise in near-perfect futility. But what were the alternatives? The Committee, which had had to be virtually dragged by the nose to accept the colony plan in the first place, had in recent years done a complete turnaround as rare minerals and new pharmaceuticals began flowing the other way down the corridor. With military ships barred by treaty from entering troughed territory, the Dominion had no way to defend Aventine except by the threat of warfare if the colony was attacked, a threat which had been delivered both publicly and privately over the years. And if there was one universal rule of politics, it was that a threat that wasn't followed through on would always cost more in the long run. Reaching over, Darl touched his intercom. Yes, comité? The young man looked up at him from the screen. Have you cross-correlated the Aventine botanical data yet? Yes, sir, Jamie Moreau nodded. It's on your desk, marked Aventine Bot Slash Fizz 3. I put it in there while you were at your general policy meeting. Thank you. Darl glanced at his watch. You might as well go on home, Moro. The night staff can help me if I need anything more. Yes, sir. Let me mention first that there's one item on that MAC card I think might be worth following up, if I understand what you're looking for. It's marked with a double star. Thank you, Darl repeated, and broke the connection. If you understood what I was looking for— he thought wryly at the blank screen. If I understood what I was looking for, I'd probably have found it years ago. The self-sufficiency studies, the deterrent proposal—it all worked, it all made sense, and Darl was ready at any time to try implementing it. But something was missing—a political keystone to ensure he could sell the package both here and on Aventine. It had to exist. But at this point Darl had no idea what it might be. Sifting through the ordered mess on his desk, he located Moro's mag card and slid it into his comm board, keying for the double star. It turned out to be an analysis of some reedy plant called Blusa, that apparently thrived in damp lowland regions on Aventine, busily concentrating one of the strategic metals on Darl's self-sufficiency list. Growth cycle. Ecological niche, biochemistry—he skimmed the overview Morrow had copied directly from the master files—biochemical response to climatological changes. He slowed down and read carefully, backed up and read it again, called up the last climatological data Aventine had sent, read those, and contacted the Dome's night computer staff for a search simulation with the colony's fauna records. The chief programmer listened carefully, informed Darl the task would take several hours to complete, and signed off. And at that point there was nothing for the comité to do but wait. If he had indeed found his elusive keystone, but even then there would be a long way to go on both of the affected worlds. And on top of that the scheme might not work, even if he succeeded completely in implementing it. In his early days on the committee he would probably have felt the uncertainties as a crushing weight around his shoulders. Now, after more than a decade, the emotional reaction was more reasonable. He would do what he could, to the best of his ability, and leave the rest to the universe. And in this instance the universe was kind. Six hours later, when he awoke from a short night's sleep, the results of the simulation were waiting. positive. He read the entire report through carefully. Yes, the keystone was there. Unexpected, unlooked for, really, but there. And now it was time to see if the other pieces he'd assembled would indeed fit together. And if so, if so, the Dominion was about to see just how the Trofts reacted to a change in the game's rules. POLITICIAN 2421 Johnny shook his head. I'm sorry, Tam, but you'll just have to make do without me. I'm starting my vacation in exactly... He consulted his watch. Four minutes. Peering out through the phone screen, Tamis Dion's face had already finished the plunge from excitement to shock and was beginning to edge back toward disbelief. You're what? Johnny, that's a Dominion Comité out there. I heard you. So what does Jew want to do? Hold a full military inspection of the planet? If the guy wanted pomp, he should have given us more than six hours' notice he was coming. Johnny, I realize you and I are new to this politics business, but don't you think it'll be expected that we'll at least be on hand in Capitalia to greet the Comité's ship? Johnny shrugged, suppressing a smile. Watching Dion try to operate in patient mode was always an amusing sight. I doubt seriously that all the syndics are going to make it in, he pointed out. And if it's not going to be unanimous, what difference does one more make? What makes the difference, Dion ground out, is that we have the honor of the Cobras to uphold. So you uphold our honor. Seriously, Tam, what's the big deal whether one, both, or neither of us shows up? Unless Zhu's planning a laser light show or something. Dion snorted. But even he had to crack a smile at the image of the dignified governor-general pulling a stunt like that. "'He's going to be furious, you know, if you're not there. What's so important about this vacation anyway? Chris threatening to leave you if you don't take some time off?' "'Don't be absurd,' Johnny snorted in turn. Though there had been small problems in that area in the past. "'In point of fact, the ship that's making orbit just about now "'has someone more important than a mere comité aboard.' "'My sister Gwen. I want to give her a tour of the bright lights "'and then help her settle in with the Molada Mountain Geological Group in Palin. "'Dion made a face. "'Dawa district, right?' "'Grumpf. You're right. "'She does deserve something approaching civilization "'before disappearing into the cultural depths.' "'He exhaled loudly, shaking his head. "'You win. Get out of there and forget your phone.' You've got half an hour's head start before I notify Ju's office that you're gone. Thanks. I owe you one. And tell Ju to relax. I'll be back in a week and the comité's hardly likely to be gone by then. You'll have plenty of formal dinners left to inflict on me. I'll quote you exactly. So long. Diane disappeared from the screen. Grinning, Johnny got to his feet, fingering the portable field phone in his belt. He could leave it behind, as Diane had suggested. But even though he was no longer on round-the-clock call, he was still a Cobra. He compromised, switching the phone off but leaving it in his belt, and left his office.
1: That was another installment in Timothy Zahn's Cobra, and that's it for the podcast. Thanks as always to audible.com and podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. Praise, thanks, and gratitude to Charles E. Gannon for sitting down with us today. And be sure to join us next week for part two of the conversation. And good night, Tony Daniel, wherever you are. This is David F. Shirod coming to you from a soundproof bunker somewhere deep in the heart of Texas. Join us here next week at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy. And keep reaching for the stars.